This is the Gospel City Church podcast. Our hope is that this message is helpful, encouraging, and even life-changing as you grow to know the person and work of Jesus. Enjoy this message today. Um, Today's scripture passage is Psalm 126. (laughs) Um, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Chelsea. Um, I'm going to begin uh, by asking you guys a question today. Uh, What is the greatest sorrow in your life right now? What is the thing that brings you the most sorrow? Another way to perhaps phrase this question is, what's stealing the joy away from your life? What's going on in your life that's stealing away that joy? This week, I was talking with a member, and I asked him, do you have joy? I've been asking a lot of people this week, do you have joy in your life? He's like, what do you mean? I responded like, are you a joyful person? Is there joy in your heart? If other people look at you, would they describe you as a joyous person? He hesitated. Uh, I forget exactly how he responded, but it was along the lines of like, I'm not sure... Perhaps not. I, I don't think so. And um, it got me thinking, and, and I asked him back, and, and not in a judgmental way, because I certainly struggle with this as well. We all do. There are times in our lives where we struggle to have joy in our hearts. And I ask, why is it that you don't have joy? Shouldn't Christians be marked with joy? You know, it's one of the fruit of the Spirit. Paul tells us to rejoice always. He says to rejoice always. So why is it that we are not marked by joy? And I'll never forget his answer. He responded very simply, well, you know, life. Life, right? It's a very simple answer, but I think it resonates with all of us in here, right? It's so relatable. We're sitting here and we're thinking, yeah, I feel you, brother. Life is hard. There are sorrows, there are hardships, we struggle with sin that wreaks havoc in our lives, there is sickness, and as soon as one thing passes and finishes, it seems like another one is coming. And life just seems like a barrage of sorrows and difficulties and struggles we go through, and thus, it's hard for us to seem like joyful people. Life, life happens. And while his answer is very relatable, There is a fallacy in this way of thinking that every Christian that needs to struggle with at one point. And the fallacy is this. His statement assumes that joy is dependent on our circumstances. That joy is dependent on our circumstances. That when we obtain certain things, job, finances, homes, whatever, we are filled with joy. When things go our way, when things are going well, we get that new contract, we, we have no problems in our relationship, then our hearts are filled with joy. And that's the joy that the world knows. 
It's temporal. It's superficial. It's fickle. You have the one moment, and then the next, you lose it. It's joy dependent on our circumstances. But the Christian joy, the joy that is referred to by Apostle Paul and Jesus in the New Testament, is different. It's different from what the world perceives as joy. There's a third century man who was um, anticipating death, and he penned these last words to a friend. He said, it's a bad world, an incredibly difficult world, but I've discovered in the midst of it a quiet and holy people who have learned a great secret. They have found a joy which is a thousand times better than any pleasure of our sinful life. They are despised and persecuted, but they care not. They are masters of their souls. They have overcome the world. These people are the Christians, and I am one of them. A joy that is a thousand times better than anything this world can offer. A joy that is not shaken whether you're despised or persecuted or whatever your circumstance might be. That is true Christian joy. And that's what we're going to look at today here in the book of Psalms. We're continuing our Psalms of Ascent and we're in the sixth of our series of these 15 songs that pilgrims would sing on their journey to Jerusalem to worship God for these major, major religious festivals. And each of these songs, they teach us something about God that encourages us and strengthens us for our journey. We've looked at ideas, things about God in his providence, his help, his security, his justice, and now today we look at his joy. This psalm will show us where and how we, the source of our real Christian joy, so that our joy would not be fickle, but it'd be rooted and grounded in something secure. And so that we would be like Paul, and when he says in 2 Corinthians that Christians are sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. And we're going to break it down like this. We're going to look at past joy, sowing for joy, and future joy. Past joy, sowing for joy, and future joy. And if you're nitpicky about English, I know the middle point doesn't fit the, the flow, but you know, you can't win them all. So past joy, sowing for joy, and future joy. So let's start with past joy. The psalmist, this pilgrim, is in the face of trouble and sorrow. And he looks back into the past and remembers what God has done for his people. He remembers past restoration and past joy. Look down with me to verse 1. It says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. You know, the Israelites were a people well acquainted with sorrow and grief. You know, ever since the time of the Israelites back in Egypt when they're under slavery and oppression in Egypt, wandering around in the desert for 40 years, countless enemies, superpowers that wanted to, to annihilate them and destroy them. There are many different circumstances that this psalm could be referring to, and scholars are not 100% sure what it refers to, but most likely it refers to the post-exile period of Israelites' history. When the Babylonians came in, they destroyed Jerusalem, took the Israelites, and sent them off into captivity, into exile throughout different regions of the area for 70 years. For 70 years, the Israelites lived like this. Now, they lived in great sorrow and grief because of this. And God, 
after those 70 years, he restored their fortunes. He restored their fortunes. And so the psalmist looks back at that time and the joy that the Israelites felt. Now, when we look at this phrase, restored their fortunes, restored their fortunes, the thing that might pop into our head when we think, oh, God restored their fortunes, we might be thinking, oh, okay, so the Israelites came back from exile. God blessed them with a bunch of gold and silver and treasures. He, he restored their walls and built up their city. He provided them chariots and a strong army. And now they were this wonderful, prosperous nation. Their fortunes were restored. But that's not what this passage is teaching us. When, God, when this passage says that their fortunes were restored, it was speaking about a spiritual restoration, a spiritual blessing that God had brought upon his people. You know, when they were in exile, they were away from their people, away from the land that God had promised them, away from the presence of God in the temple. But when he brought that period to end and he brought them back, he restored the spiritual blessing. They were able to come home and be a people again in the land that God had promised them and worship God as he dwelt with them. God restored their fortunes. And as they did, as they received this restoration, let's look down at verse 2 and see their response to how God had worked in their lives. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. In the first three verses, we see the pilgrims looking back at the joy that came from this restoration. And that's our first point of our source of Christian joy. We look back at our restoration. The source of true Christian joy is looking back at our restoration. And what that requires is to us to look back who we once were. Who were we apart from Christ? If we are honest with ourselves, we know that we are far from perfect. In fact, we are all very flawed and filled with sin. If you think that you are perfect and you're, you're doing okay, I could probably go to your friends and family and they would give testimony otherwise. You could go to my wife and she could give you in the stories and tell you how imperfect I am, right? If we're honest with ourselves, daily we think, we do, we speak, and we desire things that are contrary and an offense to God. Our hearts were rebellious towards him, all of us, without exception. You know, Romans tells us, no one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. We've all fallen short of God's glory. And thus we were separated from God, unable to seek him, unable to know him, unable to love him, unable to live for him. And this is what scripture says about our state before Christ. Scripture tells us that we were alienated and hostile in our mind towards God. That we were a people with no hope. We were spiritually dead, children of wrath, and subject to the penalty of sin and Our state was terrible. But then, then there was that day, there was that time in our life where Jesus came to us and he became real. The gospel came and it changed everything in our lives. We saw, our eyes were open and we saw the error of our ways, the offense that we uh, had against God. 
We tasted the bitterness of our sin, but then we tasted his mercy, his goodness, and kindness in our lives, and it changed everything for us. Despite our rebellion, despite our offenses, it did not stop Jesus from coming into our lives. He came, and he went to the deepest and darkest places of our hearts. He was not afraid to go there. He came to us to restore us. And so now, Scripture says, because of Christ, if your faith is in him, you are not alienated, but you are reconciled to God. You are not hostile to him, but he calls you friend. You are no, no longer under condemnation of sin, but you have hope of life. You are not spiritually dead, but you are spiritually alive. You are no longer children of wrath, but children of God. Forgiven, known, deeply loved, and completely accepted by him. This is who you are now because of Christ. God has restored you to this. And then verse 1, the psalmist describes the restoration like a dream. It was a dream the way that God had restored them. I want to ask you today, what is your dream? You know, having worked in children's ministry for several years, a question that I asked almost all the kids is, what is your dream? And kids have the best answer to this question, right? And from their answers, you can tell a lot about their personality. You can tell a lot about their desires, their backgrounds, their hopes. You can tell a lot about their responses and their, uh, about their dreams. And so uh, the other day, I was actually with some kids, and I asked them with this question. And, and some kids have these really lofty, you know, flashy dreams where someone told me that they wanted to be a, a professional athlete, right? The professional soccer player. Follow in the steps of Son Min, right? Another one, uh, this girl told me she wanted to be a K-pop star. She, she's only about 12 years old, but she's in this little girl group, and they sing songs, and they do dances together. Other kids give more realistic responses, right? They say, well, I, I want to build robots. That's my dream. That's kid language to I want to become an engineer, right? Yeah. Uh, another kid told me he wanted to be an artist and painter. And, and there are some dreams that are just like totally foreign to me that blew me back. Some kids told me they wanted to be a, a, a YouTuber and, and a TikToker. And uh, I guess that just shows to see, you know, how old I am. But yeah, these kids have all sorts of dreams. And what is your dream today, Gospel City? Has it changed from when you were a kid? I would say, you know, most of us, we either achieved them or we moved on to a different dream. And most of our dreams right now might look like this, right? We dream of financial stability and amassing wealth. We, we dream of a career path that, that gains us respect, that fulfills us and gives us a sense of purpose. We dream for that perfect spouse and children and, and that apartment downtown and, and a nice imported car. And if we had these things, right, then that would be the dream. We would have it all. That would be the dream, wouldn't it? But if you've ever achieved any of your dreams, if you've achieved any of your goals, you know that it doesn't last. You might temporarily feel that joy and that happiness, but then your heart quickly moves on to the next goal, to the next dream, to the next thing that you don't have already. And that's that fickle joy that we were talking about. That's not the true joy. Christian, I want to tell you today that if your faith is in Christ, you are already living the dream. You are already living the dream. 
When God looks at you, he doesn't see your unrighteousness, but he sees Christ's righteousness. When God looks at you, he doesn't count your sins against you, but he says it was paid for on the cross. So you are now mine, and I am yours forever. Nothing can separate you from me. That is the dream, Gospel City, and you are living it today. That is the source of Christian joy. Looking back at your restoration, realizing that who you are right now in Christ is the dream. You know, it can be so easy for us to forget this and lose the joy that came with knowing that we are loved and accepted by God, right? But that joy is always there for us to access when we remind ourselves and meditate on the gospel, to know what Jesus has done for us and be reassured because of who we are because of the gospel. You know, we get caught up in all our different identities, right? We get caught up in being a teacher, in being a pastor, in being a ministry leader, a son, a daughter, a father, a friend, a boyfriend, spouse. We get caught up in all these identities that are part of who we are, and, but we forget the one true identity that trumps all these different hats that we wear, and that's we are his children, that we are his prized possession. And from that, there's a source of joy that is unending, that we can draw from daily as we meditate upon what Jesus has done for us to get us into that standing with God. And then as you do so, your confession will be the same as it reads in verse 3. The Lord has done great things for me. For me. The Lord has done great things for me because of what Christ has done and I am glad. Next, we're going to look at sow, sowing for joy. Sowing for joy. Let's take a look uh, down at verse 4 and read that together. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. I want us to notice that there's a shift in the, uh, in the, the tense in the psalm at this point. If verse 1 through 3 was a look, reminder of looking back in the past to what God has done to restore his people and the joy that it brought him, the psalmist is now here praying to God, asking for restoration. He's asking for God to do it again once more. Now, the Negev was this uh, dry region in the south of Jerusalem uh, towards the Dead Sea. And this region is a very dry and arid um, area, and there's many stream beds, or what they call as wadis, and, and throughout most of the year, it's very dry, and these stream beds are just very empty, and, and there's nothing in them. But one time a year, these rains will come, and as these rains come, it will fill these dry river stream beds, and it would fill these streams so that waters would be overflowing, and it would bring life into this dry desert region. And this picture shows us an example, a picture of the Christian walk, that the people of God who had once experienced such great restoration, as we journey through this life, there are times where we go through spiritual droughts. We go through dryness. We go and before God and we ask him for him to restore us again. The pilgrimage is filled where these of these prayers where we ask God to restore us. Because hardships will come, and our hearts will wander away and grow cold from God. 
We will struggle with sin and temptation. And, this, and it's not just inward, but as Christians, we also look outwardly as well and cry out for restoration too, right? We, we, we see our loved ones who are living apart from Christ, and our hearts break and we cry out for restoration. We see loved ones suffering under mental and emotional and physical ailments, and so we cry out and ask for restoration. We see injustice being done to people, to cities, to nations, and our hearts cry out to God for restoration to be done. We cry out for ourselves, and we cry out as we look to our neighbors. And then in verse 5, there's an answer to this prayer. There's a promise to those who pray for God's restoration. Look down in verse 5 with me. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. It's a simple promise. It says, whoever prays and seeks and, and sows their tears as they cry out for restoration, there is a promise of a joy that is to come. And that's the second source of our true Christian joy. We sow with tears to God. We sow with tears to God. Now, I want us to notice the word sow here. The sow teaches us a lot about what's being conveyed to us in this passage, because Everyone goes through sorrows. Whether you're a believer or not, we all go through sorrows and we all shed tears. So then is this promise of joy to come for everyone and anyone who sheds tears? No. There's this particular way we are to shed our tears, and that is to sow them to God. Now, I want us to think about what sowing seeds actually is. It's hard work. It's It's intentional. You know, I'm, I don't know much about agriculture, but from my quick research, you just don't throw seeds anywhere and hope for it to grow, right? There's a lot of care and attention. There's intentionality. You got you to gotta turn the soil over, you gotta, which is like plowing it, and then you got to level it out. So I, I know I sound very, you know, uninformed. But in any case, there's a lot of work that goes into sowing seeds, and it's very intentional. You know, maybe, you know, Tim Keller illustrates it a little bit better when he compares it to investing. Imagine all the hard money that you have worked for and amassed and you saved, all, all the blood, sweat, and tears that you went into it, and you want to invest this money. Are you going to just throw it at any random stock and hope for the best? Absolutely not. You're going to do your research. You're going to try to find the best option, the safest option, the best for your return. And you're going to put it into a stock knowing that you're going to reap dividends later. And so it is with our sorrows and tears. We sow them to God. Right? So when those sorrows come, what we tend to do is when those sorrows come, we sow those tears and we run perhaps to social media. We sow those tears, and maybe we run to substances or things that help us escape. We run to maybe our careers, or maybe we run to people. And, you know, it's not bad to run to people for help during those difficult times, but it shouldn't be the end all. Ultimately, we want to run to God with our tears and sow it to him. And if we do, Scripture promises, uh, promises us today that we will reap with joy. We will reap with joy. That means when you're praying, you're praying for that loved one, that aunt, that family member, for salvation to come, for them to experience the joy of Christ, and you're praying for years, and, and you don't see any progress, you continue on. You continue to weep, and you continue to sow. 
knowing that, and trusting him and, and knowing that he has a plan. You know, when you see injustice in the world, what you do is you sow tears, you pray, you go out there, and you find ways to love those who have been disenfranchised, those who are hurting, those who have less than us. It means crying and weeping over your sins, the sins, the little ones where, you know, you just got angry at someone, you you cry out in repentance, or the sins that have been just plaguing your life over and over and over again as you cry to God and you wish that it would just be taken away from you. You cry in repentance. You sow those tears, not out of guilt or condemnation, not not in a way to earn forgiveness, but because you've tasted God's grace and you want to turn from that sin and you want more of him. It means during those tough seasons where you're in those survival mode and you open up the scriptures in the morning and those words just are not coming to your heart. You can't find the words to pray. But still, you sow those seeds of tears and you do your best to keep at it, that daily persistence in, in the means of grace, through word and through prayer. And when sickness comes into your life, you cry those tears towards God. Don't waste your tears. Sow them to God. Sow your tears to God. Because he promises, he promises that joy will come as you do. Don't run to social media, to people, to escapes, to your career, but run to him. Psalm 56 uh, says this. You keep track of all my sorrows. You have collected all my tears in your bottle. You have recorded each one in your book. With God, no sorrow goes unnoticed, no tear wasted or unrecorded. Sow them to God, and you will see his restoration in your life. You sow them to God, and you will see your loved one come to Christ. Sow them to God, and you'll see healing come to you. You keep sowing to God, and you eventually see yourself overcoming that sin that was plaguing your life. You will experience restoration and joy that God brings into our lives over and over and over again as we walk this journey. But at this point, some of you might be asking the question, well, what if I have been sowing? What if I've been sowing for a long time and I haven't seen restoration? I haven't seen God work in my life yet. There are times where we won't be able to make sense of the darkness. We won't be able to understand why we are in such long seasons of weeping and praying over whatever it is in our lives. This promise is a promise for sure. But if you notice, there's no promise on the timeline of when that restoration and joy will come. There will be things you cry for in this life. There are things that you will go to God for in this life where he will answer that prayer and you will see restoration here and now. And it will bring much joy to your heart as you see God working. But there are prayers, there are weeping that won't be answered in this lifetime, but will absolutely be answered in the next. And that brings us to our next point, future joy, future joy. Let's look down and read verse 6 together. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. If you notice in verse 5, it's, it's a group, right? It says, those who sow in tears. But here now in verse 6, it says, he, he who goes out weeping. It goes from the plural 
and now to the singular. And that singular is pointing us to Jesus. It points us to Jesus. Isaiah 53 says that Jesus is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Luke 19 says that Christ journeyed to Jerusalem and he wept over that city as he went to that cross. In in Hebrews 5, it says, During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petition with fervent cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Jesus, the Son of God, was a man of deep sorrow. He felt the grief and the pain of walking this life in the flesh. And he did so perfectly. And he did so reaping, sowing his tears to God. And as he made his way to the cross, he stayed on that cross until death for the joy that was set before him. For the joy that was set before him, us. And now he is risen from the dead and seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, where he has given a name above all other names. And the harvest that he sowed into on that cross, he will one day reap. He will bring those sheaves home with him. He will bring us home to a place where there will be no more tears, where there will be full restoration. In Genesis 3, it says that Christ was a seed that is to come to crush the head of the serpent. And in John 12, Christ speaks of himself as a seed that needed to fall into the earth and die to bear much fruit. Christ endured the deepest sorrow of being forsaken by the Father so that we would be known by the Father. And his death was necessary for him to reap the harvest of his joy, us. Revelation says that he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. It's going to be a glorious day where all weeping ceases when God comes and brings us into a final, full restoration. The things that we wept for and cried for, we will reap shouts of joy when that day comes. And that brings us to our third point, our third source of true Christian joy, is we look forward to that day of full restoration where God will right every wrong, where he will bring justice, where he will kill all sin that was in our body. He will take away all infirmities and bring us to glory. Um, how, how many of you have guys have read the Narnia Chronicles by C.S. Lewis? I think most of us are pretty familiar with that series. Uh, as the, the series ends, C.S. Lewis attempts to express the absolute joy that will come as our earthly lives come to an end and we are reunited with God for all eternity. And, and this is what the book writes. The things that began to happen after that Sorry, the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. 
The sorrow we experience now in this journey is but the cover page and the title page. God walks with us through these sorrows as he sent Christ to come down so he can sympathize with us. And he restores us along the way. But the ultimate day of true restoration will come where the next day will be better than the last for all eternity. True unchanging joy is not found in our circumstances, but is found in what Christ has done for us and what is promised for us ahead. Let's pray. If you've been blessed through this ministry, join us in reaching others by partnering with us today. Gospel City is a gospel-centered church in Seoul, South Korea, on a mission to plant Korean-speaking, healthy, gospel-centered churches. You can give by going to the website give.thegospelcity.org. Thank you for listening and subscribe to enjoy more messages like this. Remember, Jesus changes everything.